This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Rebecca Burgess is a gardener, weaver, and natural dyer. She is the executive director of Fibershed, the chair of the Carbon Cycle Institute, and the author of two books. Her newest is Fibershed, growing a movement of farmers, fashion activists, and makers for a new textile economy. She joined us for this conversation in honor of our upcoming Earth Day on April 22nd from the studios of KWMR, homegrown radio in Point Reyes Station, California. Welcome, Rebecca. Mm, Thank you, Jennifer. It's such a nice honor to be here with you today. I mentioned the word fiber shed, I think, once or twice in my introduction of you, along with other things that you do in this world. Will you describe for listeners what your current plant, garden, nature-based place and practice are and what they look like? What do you do, Rebecca? I love that question. I can describe my own garden right now as it was this morning as I walked through it and worked in it. Um, So I'm kind of a an integrationist when it comes to gardening. I'm I'm very interested in the plants that have always been in my floristic province. So the native species, um, the yarrows, the mugwort, those are all kind of emerging right now even in this incredible drought experience we're having without rain. Um, The the native plants are still that I've planted are coming forward. California festuca, um, purple needle grass, a lot of the kind of forb and grass communities that I've put in my garden are are pocketed with wildflowers that I just use seed mixes actually from Larner Seed, who's a, a native plant seed um, cleaner and harvester in my community. And so I have, you know, the coastal California wildflower mix coming up everywhere. Um, but I also integrate that with collards, um, southern collards and kales, dino kales and red Russian kales and a lot of um, heirloom lettuces. And so <laughs> then there's fava beans popping through that and um, rye and oat, uh, vetch, Um, you know, kind of like the traditional nitrogen cover crop mix is all mixed in with all these other natives and food producers. Mm -hmm. And so my, and then everything self seeds. I've only been in this one garden for about, I think this is now my third year in this one garden, but everywhere I go, I try to let everything naturalize and I put in natives as quickly as I can to create cover and, um, and to feed the microbes in the soil. So um, it's ironically, the only plants I've been planting right now for dyes have been California solidago, so the goldenrod. But mugwort is a wonderful dye as well. Um, so is the the California goldenrod. And those I've been getting little tiny plugs and putting them everywhere. <laughs> and they're because they are rhizomatous, you know, they're just in their second year, they start popping up in locations that are very exciting. You never know, <laughs> like, where they're going to pop out and create more opportunities for pollinators and dyes. Um, yeah, so that's, I, I again, in, integration. I'm interested in the kind of the historic Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> and then also before that, I have Celtic roots. I'm interested in what the European farming traditions from my ancestors were and integrating those with the indigenous um, ways that were honed in California for millennia before my family arrived here. And I... 
I think about integration on so many levels, and I think that's really expressed in my garden. Um, how do we heal? How do we bring culture together? How do we bring species together? Um, how do we cooperate? How do we integrate while all having our, you know, as plants do, their natural boundaries and symbiosis and allelopathic, you know, qualities. That's all real in the garden as well. Yeah. I love that term integrationist. And I I can picture um, you in more coastal Northern California and that just mosaic of color you just described to us from the golden rock to the mugwort, all mixed up together with their roots all intertwined and cooperating as they as they may and as they can. Um, and those new opportunities. And, and this is resonating with me on uh, both literal and metaphoric levels, as listeners will see when we get further into your work. So just in brief, uh, the idea of cooperation and integration and these surprise opportunities that appear, describe being the director of Fibershed. What, what is Fibershed? What is a Fibershed? And um, how does this riff off of this integrationist idea? Fibershed as a noun is analogous to a food shed or a watershed in that you're defining uh, a strategic geography that can provide the materials for your second skin. And so as a noun, it operates just like a watershed or food shed noun would in that those are geographies that define where your water comes from or geographies that define where your food comes from. And they look different depending on the bioregion as defined by rainfall pattern or geomorphology, just really the synthesis of Mm -hmm. biogeochemistry expressed in food types, fiber types, water. All that is very site and place-based specific. Um, And then how we take that and operationalize it into an organization is... The org is is, an, is 501c3, so it's focused on illuminating and educating what a fiber shed is, what it has been, what it is, what it could be, um, and and those opportunities for for review, for analysis, and future projection are in our case often grounded in in a mosaic between peer reviewed data and um, anecdotal experience and um, seat of the pants knowing and we we really work we do work with um we work with biogeochemists we work with agroecologists um we work with labs to test soil carbon levels in the soils in our fiber shed and we also do work to help um you know even commodity growers who are focused on international markets we we try to you know engage in in that space to see what we can do to benefit landscapes that are often you know hit pretty hard by um, the the require the economic requirements <laughs> of surviving in agriculture. And so um, we do our best to work with, you know, everyone in our fiber shed. And that could be people of um, every political persuasion, every ethnic background. It means it means th- it means you're in your community and you're serving your community as it exists and meeting people where they are. And then working towards a North Star that includes um, a more resilient local economy that can produce its own second skin without, as an example right now, um, you know, a, our stock market lost, I'm not, I don't, not in the stock market, but apparently it lost many thousands of points um, just due to 
uh, coronavirus because trade has been shut down and um, with China. And, and I've looked at some of the the issues around the uh, like publicly traded textile companies and the hits that they're taking because their inventory is sitting and not moving and it's in boxes and it's in shipping containers or there's yarn in Eastern Europe and it can't make its way to China for processing further. All of that is causing like this incredible um, succession of very big dominoes, economic dominoes, um, because we have no resiliency. Mm -hmm. We're not actually being able to revert to our own local systems for basic human need. We're highly dependent for our second skin on these transnational supply chains, which are, as right now experiencing, they're economically vulnerable. And they cascade into places in our economy where they don't need to. That vulnerability is affecting things it doesn't need to. We've become too brittle and too monolithic. And so our, our question is, how do you create more economic climate resiliency? And then also, because we work with working landscapes, anthropogenically managed landscapes, the vision is how do you actually transform those landscapes to become net carbon sinks so that agriculture no longer becomes you know 23% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, but it actually becomes a place where we sink the legacy load of lithosphere-based carbon that we've been emitting into the atmosphere through enhancing the, the work of photosynthesis. That's cover cropping, you know, windbreaks, hedgerows. <laughs> we, we work a lot with producers um, to help them with grants, help them with research to understand how, again, you integrate these known soil conser- conservation practices into landscapes that have a lot of pressure on them to perform. And then we also work with people who have retired from whatever career and have, you know, tried to get out of the the rat race a bit and have land and are working on really interesting projects like they're raising livestock conservancy breeds of sheep. Um, they're protecting ancient genetics in their backyard. Yeah. <laughs> um, we work a lot with um, like the Chico Flax Project, um, Sandy Fisher and Durrell, who are working on raising endemic, you know, a flax that will work um, to that region. So right. how do you curate and cultivate over time a seed that does well in Chico for, for linen production? Again, it's not a highly commodified or, you know, it's not a model that is yet in this, um, it's not in the global economy and we don't want it to be. How do we nurture flax in our home community and produce textiles from these locations? And the last thing I'll say about our work as a nonprofit is we also connect capital resources to projects. So we, as I mentioned, we write grants for for producers, but we also invest, um, we find and we curate the relationships between investors and entrepreneurs who want to build manufacturing systems in our community. And that's something we've been doing the last few years, but it's really hitting a lot of traction right now, particularly with what we're seeing happen like today with the shutdown of the Chinese economy. It is... um There is an irony to the fact that we are having this conversation in the midst of this viral scare and its consequences. But there are, I hope, also, as to use a word you used just a little earlier, there are there is illumination that is taking place as a result of it that um, we can learn from. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Rebecca Burgess is the founder of Fibershed. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Hey, it's Jennifer. 
It's a little crazy to listen to this conversation recorded with Rebecca in early March, just as I was headed out to the book tour. The coronavirus was just taking hold across the globe, and we here in the U.S. were two weeks from seeing the very first stay-home orders. The importance of this conversation in looking at and illuminating the many ways in which our world has become less flexible and less creatively responsive to crises such as this due to how multinational many of our supply chains are is fearsome and fascinating. As Rebecca notes, truths we could not see are being illuminated right in this moment. I love the question at baseline for Rebecca and the Fibershed movement. How do we create more economic resiliency and simultaneously work with managed landscapes, including agriculture and home gardens, to become net carbon sinks so that agriculture is no longer 23% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, but agriculture actually becomes a valuable place in which we sink some of these emissions through better practices such as cover cropping, windbreaks, hedgerows, to integrate known soil-conserving practices into our cultural landscapes that have a lot of pressure on them to perform, as she says. Some of the answers are, of course, right in front of us. Our farms, our purchasing power which affirms those farms, our own home landscapes. Are they habitat? Are they growing food, medicine, beauty, and being valuable carbon sequesterers? Because they can be, and right now their importance in our lives has never been more clear. We can see our gardens. Every garden hour we invest, every gardening dollar we allocate, which based on this conversation could in fact include the many dollars we spend on the textiles in our lives. This is becoming clear in this illuminating moment. Our gardens can be valuable economic driving forces for change. Hmm. Now, back to our conversation with Rebecca Burgess of Fibershed, envisioning and growing a new textile economy. This is Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. Rebecca Burgess is the author of Fibershed, Growing a Movement of Farmers, Fashion Activists, and Makers for a New Textile Economy, out now from Chelsea Green Publishing. As we come back, Rebecca tells us about her own journey story to this work. Say yes, I hope that the current state of affairs is just um, a ticket towards greater illumination of the existing vulnerabilities of the system. Um, may we not forget this moment and just keep digging into something better and more um, caring and nurturing. And to speak of nurturing, um, I was nurtured in gardens uh, as a child, uh, primarily through the stability that my great grandmother offered, um, who was Depression era. Um, a person, generation, and she uh, lived in a landscape that was tidal, so near uh, a fresh and saltwater interchange, a brackish system that had historically been like a myriad of different 
little waterways that I think had been used you know, for shellfish collection and uh, migratory bird pathways for a long time, but uh, until the Europeans came and they filled in some of these wetlands and um, her home was kind of abutting these wetlands and she um, somehow put together this incredible garden that, again, it was this, it was kind of a stark I think it was it was it was not as integrated perhaps as where I've taken the gardening, but it was like hydrangeas and camellias and rhododendrons, and yet, um, you know, out in the back backyard was where the strawberries and the tomatoes and all the food was, but all the ornamentals were like the front of the house, the magnolia trees, um, the ash tree, um, the lawn. Um, all, but everything was so well loved and tended. She didn't leave one cornerstone unturned um, in terms of her care and mm. her meticulous, um, you know, management of that system. And it was, it probably was a postage stamp, you know, yeah. track home. But <laughs> it was in North, you know, it's in North Central California in the Mount Tamalpais. We were right underneath Mount Tamalpais. And so I grew up in the shadow of that mountain and the... Um, you know, we're one of the top 25 most diverse ecological zones on the planet, the California Floristic Province. And Mount Tam has got s- just streaks of serpentine running through it that create um, places where, in, you know, more invasive species, or you could say, I don't like that term, but species that have tended to take over that our watershed, mm-hmm. like um, scotch or French broom, you don't see them in the serpentine. And so as a child, it was this interesting contrast between really like truly ecologically um, pure systems like these serpentine systems that I would hike through and then going back to the hydrangeas and the camellias and the fill that our garden was you know settled on was wetland fill (laughs) and um, I think it was just it was a childhood of feeling very supported by the land but also knowing that the land had kind of a complexity and a lot of pointy edges to it in terms of who was there and who is now there and how we're managing versus how it was managed. It wasn't explicitly stated, but, um, you know, I came to love it all. I, I love all the ways in which people garden, and as long as they're doing it without synthetic chemistry, I'm <laughs> I'm always pleased by the creative spark of gardens. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I've just had a very liberal approach to gardening because of all these different influences um, that came together in her garden. And and the long walks we would take along these tidal shores um, and then into the Mount Tam watershed. It was um, you go through so many transition zones and um, you, you embrace all of them. And each one of them has something distinct to teach you. Yeah, I love the the imagery of that that very intersectional space between mountain and shore and foothills and cultivated garden and wild spaces because um, that is those intersections are where most people live between spaces and um, and even if they don't see those seams where they come together and how they overlap, they are there. And that is part of what you are asking people to do, I think, is to see more consciously and um, respond to that seeing in um, more conscientious ways. So you grow up in this space, well supported and loved by the, the humans and the land around you in all its forms. And what grows you into becoming someone who works in this uh, in this cultivation of plants 
kind of way uh, that takes you to your first book, Harvesting Color? Mm. Well, probably the time spent at UC Davis was a real inflection point mm-hmm. for what got in what became Harvesting Color because I was. Um, I think I was caught by the lack of integration, um, the kind of myopic approach to understanding, you know, if you want to to um, be an agroeconomics specialist, you go over here. If you want to understand, you know, um, liberal arts, you go over here. If you want to stand, understand art history, you go over here. <laughs> um, but I, again, I just, I don't ever, I don't see art history and horticulture and the economics of agriculture really is separate. Mm-mm. I always saw these things as, again, highly like woven together by their nature. And so I did focus quite a bit on how I could drop into multiple um, departments and take classes in multiple departments to really flush out my own understanding of of academics in these different sectors. Yeah. <laughs> And again, they're divided up economically in many cases, um, subject-wise, but also they're divided up to kind of get people into careers of sorts. And um, I, I was struck again by being in the textile um, design studios, learning to weave, but using acrylic yarn, and then going out into the fields where they were testing BT cotton for Monsanto and just being like, hmm, I'm not even using... <laughs> Like, here we are with all these test plots of cotton. Um, we're surrounded by, um, you know, fields that occasionally get grazed down by sheep, and yet none of these natural fibers are even discussed in my weaving class, not even once. And I think I was just, like, amazed at the lack of connections <laughs> that I I think harvesting color was kind of this thing of, well, I have to explore myself. I have to teach myself these things. So I went out and got a, a natural dye book that used more of the historic dyes um, like cochineal and logwood and indigo brazilwood. And I, and they were foreign dyes, but at least I was using plants to make color. Um, I used those in a lot of my weavings. I, I purchased yarn and would do all my own natural dye experiments, weave them on my loom, and that was the beginning. But then I got much more interested in like, well, what are the plants around here that I could use? What are the plants around here I could garden and create color out of? And again, this was back in the early 90s. And I wasn't, I didn't come out, I came out of a a home life that was really about like surviving in many ways. It was a nurturing environment, but it was economically a very stressed environment. Mm -hmm. And so there was just no wiggle room for like spending a whole afternoon on a craft. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't have that kind of childhood. (laughs) I got to creep into the garden when I was lucky and feel supported by plant communities. But I really was pushed hard academically to perform and, you know, do well by yourself and get out there and take better care of yourself because we're not going to be able to. Yeah. (laughs) So that pressure was interesting because I kind of just I guess I shrugged that off and just decided I was going to study art history and agriculture and weave and (laughs) all these things that don't have a lot of economic (laughs) uh, driving force behind them. But Harvesting Color, again, it was just, it was my exploration into the bioregional textile uh, dye traditions of North America because I knew that, you know, there were stories that were hidden. Every, Every time you go into a classroom and, you know, my questions were always, well, what 
what isn't being said? What isn't being brought to light? I'm sure there's things here. And so my, my journey has always been to uncover and illuminate these things that aren't like being clearly made evident to you. Right. And that those narratives and disconnections that are there if you just see them, if you look at them and you put them together are phenomenal, just just as the whole like narrative of fullness and richness in any plant scene is also there. So it was in your work, from what I understand, through both having read Harvesting Color as a, a knitter and gardener myself, and then following your work into the fiber shed, it was the work in Harvesting Color where you are exploring this bioregional um, legacy and history of stories in the U.S. that you begin to see some other disconnections and you begin to see some other um, networks that are either there and not fully productive or there with a few missing links that then pulls you deeply into this next phase of your of your work. Will you sort of unravel, to go on with this pun, um, for listeners, what you started to see and how that started to come together and click for you of not only are there stories here, there are there are these bigger disconnections that I'm seeing. Hmm. Yes. So while traveling to the Hopi and, and Navajo reservation in the, well, I guess I was coming out of Arizona, uh, Window Rock area, and I I had taken a plane to to get around to travel for the book to, to learn about these different textile recipes. And I did observe, I mean, my own clothing was, <laughs> I'm sitting in the airport, I'm like, my own clothing is not naturally dyed, you know, just having this like, hmm, you know, here you are about to produce a book about these recipes, but how have you integrated the recipes into your own wardrobe? And that hadn't been done very well. Um, simultaneously thinking that about my own, my own disconnects, I realized that it was, you know, 2009, and I think Obama had just sent a whole slew of troops to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And um, I had also been looking into, you know, underneath, of course, the war economy, the there's the oil pipelines. And, um, and at the time, just thinking about why do communities war with each other? They war with each other over resources and the ability to dominate resources and control econo a global economic structure. And I thought, well, the way out of a war economy, the way out of war would be for as many communities as possible on our planet to become as resilient and self-sufficient as possible. And, um, you know, kind of in the Thomas Jefferson sense of like, too, I mean, to give him some props, even though there's a lot of issues with our history here in the United States, <laughs> our founding fathers, I'm always like, hmm, you know, that idea of the yeoman farmer or the person who was highly literate, could produce their own food, could take, you know, could weave their textiles on the front porch mm -hmm. on an old pine loom. Um, that was a, that was a populace that could not be controlled, um, and so, you know, this idea that we have given our material culture up to the global economy and the powers that be that dominate the flow of resources 
want to control those resources through any means possible, including using taxpayer dollar-funded military operations to do so. So if we're really going to be a peaceful set of global community members, there's no way through this other than creating more resilient local economies. Because once we are dependent on all these resources coming from outside, someone's will want to control those resources in ways that could become violent and has historically and traditionally become violent and aggressive and dominated, domination-oriented. So Fibershed was like, hmm, well, what are all the basic human needs and how do we procure those in a peaceful way within communities? First of all, we'd become, or second of all, <laughs> first we become more peace, peaceful by nature because we don't need to fight over things. We actually are producing what we need in higher numbers. Secondly, we would create more heterogeneity in the system. So when I traveled to Missouri, I was observing that the Missouri dyes of pokeberry and the, the time of year that the elderberry is fruiting, their goldenrod, their um, joe pie weed, all of those prairie wildflowers and berries produce different colors and different dye palette than what I can produce in north central California. So this idea that you would have an endemic culture reflected of your biology would be a more beautiful planet to live on. And it's a planet that we, you know, we've kind of overridden. I mean, it's always been a place, I mean, people love to travel because they would go somewhere and things would be different. The food would be different. The textiles would be different. The music would be different. And we like, we honor and love that. And in fact, Mm -hmm. now it's become elite and niche to have like an endemic culture. (laughs) You know, everything's getting homogenized. And I, I find that homogenization high risk for war, a high risk for brittleness and breaking down and also very dull to the senses. Yeah. Very dull to the senses. Yes. So Fibershed was born out of my kind of like, hmm. This this reverie on an airplane about how your clothes don't reflect the recipes you're researching. And it's just those little seeds that are brain... And luckily you listened to it. You know, you saw it and you recognized it for what it was and you decided to, to go forward. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. A fiber shed is the supply chain starting from the soil that grows the plants or animals that grow the fibers that are processed into the textiles all around us. Rebecca Burgess envisions a world in which our own local fiber sheds improve our resiliency, our economies, and our environments right where we are. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, I've always been an advocate for all of us gardeners, ever more urgently giving ourselves the permission slips we sometimes need to justify going out to the garden. For our work there, our thinking and art and craft there, our engagement with the more than human and the mindset adjustment we find there. Sports fans are very sad to have had baseball season, basketball season, and now the Olympics canceled. We gardeners are very sad to have had the Chelsea Flower Show canceled, to have most of our botanic gardens and floral design studios shuttered. But gardening is on, 
and Rebecca Burgess reminds us that tending to the plants that have living roots in the soil and photosynthesizing leaves in the air helps to offset carbon. In addition, planting and deadheading or harvesting our flowers and vegetables to keep producing offers more resources to birds and insects and helps sequester carbon. And so, now more than ever, for food, for medicine, for sanity and joy, go out into the garden, my friends. Tend your plant friends and they will care for you in return. Now, back to our conversation with Rebecca Burgess of Fibershed, envisioning and growing a new textile economy. I am all in. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Rebecca Burgess, the founder of the Fibershed Cooperative Movement and author of Fibershed, Growing a Movement of Farmers, Fashion Activists, and Makers for a New Textile Economy, available now from Chelsea Green Publishing. Welcome back. Maybe explore with us the ways in which you got it started and and where you started because the the new book gives a, a very um, thorough and analytical overview of the work and some examples of it in action right now, even if it's not fully actionable or fully manifested at every step along the supply chain, it is it is close and it's getting closer all the time. And each step you get to in this um, in this supply chain, which sounds so like in this complex community of people who are, you know, taking care of the soil, growing the the plants or the animals that then become the fibers that then are processed into the material culture items we both need and want, um, and hopefully sequester carbon along the way, you have visualized the whole closed circuit of community-based fiber shed. Um, Talk to us about the beginning stages of the idea and how it started to manifest into a full circle. The first stages were, again, driven from this question of, like, how am I living my own values or at least exploring those values more materially in three-dimensional reality? And so I developed a wardrobe for one year with um, – or I, I had the idea that I would wear textiles, um, you know, bathing suit and underwear and socks – uh, that would be sourced from materials grown within 150 miles of my front door, including the natural dyes and the fiber. And then the people right. who would help birth this wardrobe with me would be in this community as well. So everybody's here. And it ended up being about 19 counties. Um, 150 miles was economically viable because I could drive to a farm and then come back home and sleep at night. Um so I didn't, you know, I, I, if I needed to get home, I was, I didn't have to pay for lodging mm-hmm. or um, find us, you know, a camping environment and take time away from my day jobs. Like it all kind of had to work within this, um, the, the social and economic structures that I had kind of for myself. And, and also I wanted as small a geography as possible. How close to home could I source all these materials? And then I recognized in the process that not only was there an abundance of diverse fiber coming off of a huge 
number of um, sheep of all different breeds, that we also had, um, you know, 250 million pounds of cotton pulsing off of San Joaquin Valley farmland and we every year, 3.1 million pounds of wool pulsing off sheep's backs and every year. And then we had people raising cashmere goats. We had people raising angora goats for mohair. We had angora rabbits. Um, just this uh, preponderance of raw material and no one wearing California textiles on their back. Mm -hmm. And it was just the weirdest. You're like, hmm, we grow it and we grow a lot of it and we grow it well and it's good quality. And we don't here, we live here, but we don't actually get to wear those those fibers. So that drove this larger piece of, well, what kind of service could could an organization provide to start bridging the delta between the growth in the field and the human skin And that's when the manufacturing piece came up of like, well, we could start looking at how to invest in these these pieces of infrastructure. And what I also found was that there were actually a number of people already in the wings who wanted to run mills or were already running small mills. And today we kind of find ourselves halfway between where I started, which is like um, this idea that that we had a lot and we also had small manufacturers willing to step up and grow their businesses. And um, right now we're at a real inflection point where there are at least six legacy businesses in North Central California that are ripe and ready for expansion of their businesses. Mm -hmm. This could produce, with their businesses expanding, we could take all of the coarse wool that comes off the sheep that isn't prime for textiles and produce... Um, felt that could be used for like in this room I'm in right now that needs kind of sound um, insulating properties. Uh, We could create biodegradable sound insulating uh, uh, material with felt. We could have, you know, felt is good for car parts. It's good for (laughs) public transportation parts. (laughs) If you do that, Uh, it, it could be used for so many industrial purposes. And we have so much wool of that quality and so I'm very excited to see not only textiles produced from the growth of these businesses, but all these durable goods that are right now made out of fossil carbon, polyesters yep. and all that, we could supplant with biodegradable materials that literally are going to waste every year. Yeah. Like wool is considered a byproduct in for many, many flock owners. And it's because we just don't have the right systems to turn that wool into something that we actually dearly need. We need to supplant our reliance on polyfibers. They're suffocating our marine ecosystems. They're now in our drinking water. They're in the hydrologic cycle. It rains plastic fiber. You know, it's in it's in the snow at 14,000 feet in Colorado. They're finding plastic fiber because it's just permeated the biosphere. So if we can utilize what we have, we can really make a dent in the toxicity of the current reliance on these other materials. So anyway, manufacturing, we're at this point where we've we've built something called the Regional Fiber Manufacturing Initiative. It has a, a series of committees that are focused on looking at the whole ecosystem of manufacturing, 
where is the white space where we don't have an entrepreneur ready to go and expand? Where do we have entrepreneurs ready to go? How do we help them move their business plans forward? How do we do due diligence on those plans and then help those entrepreneurs get in front of the social impact investment community? So the RFMI is basically a pipeline to help move people from fledgling to fully invested in and with real conscious money, like money that is <laughs> understands that this is about building a more resilient system and not about capitalizing off of young entrepreneurs who are in highly, <laughs> I would say, they're very low margin businesses. Yep. These are just businesses we need. These are not businesses that are going to make somebody rich. They're just because we need good livelihoods, multi-generation jobs. Like textiles could become, a mill could be something you could pass on to your children and your children's children. It can be a livelihood for many generations, and historically it was. And we need more jobs like that in our communities. Well, and it's so, you know, I mean, just your your use of the word pipeline. I'm like, our whole our whole lives are are built around an infrastructure that is not to our greatest benefit, and um, the the implications of successfully nurturing and manifesting this full circle of, you know, the the fiber, whether that's plant or animal, um, on soil that is regenerated, regenerated as a result of that um, cultivation, then being manufactured in the place, then moving to being what is on our skin and in our material lives in home and wherever else, office, etc., it 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 has so many wide-reaching implications. As I was reading the book, I was just, you know, and, and these weren't things I didn't know, but to hear them articulated in this way made me just my head was exploding with, wow, you know, this this changes my incredible paranoia about the endocrine disruptors in the fabric all around us on our flame retardant fabric-covered sofas and rugs, which I've been, you know, I've been aware since I was a young mother 20 years ago to make sure that there were no flame retardants, if I could help it, on the carpets for my children, the the 100% wool carpets to, you know, the fabric on the couch, etc. And the clothing and that that sighting of the plastic fiber at 14,000 feet in the snow in Colorado and knowing all of the you know, endocrine disruption as well as just food chain disruption that it is causing and to know that there is a way to work it out, that there is a way to make it better was so powerful, Mm. Rebecca. Good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I will tell you, and and this is no small um, testimony, as I was reading this book, I have this moment like you sitting on a plane saying, you know, I'm going to research these recipes, but I am not living this value. I am about to go on a speaking tour for my first book. um, And I all I can worry about, I mean, I'm so excited about it. And I am hopeful at the messages and the meeting of people of like mind. And I am horrified that I have to take an airplane to do it. So then I think I need to offset my carbon even in small ways if I can. 
and and I was in the middle of reading your book, and I said, I'm going to make a donation to Fibershed, and I'm going to make a donation to my Chico Flax um, oh, nice. project here in Chico because that is a carbon offset I can believe in at this exact moment in time based on what I am doing. And um, yeah, and and it, but it's the kind of it is not beating somebody over the head. It is showing them what is there and saying, there is a way out of this mess. And even if we just start with these small steps, we are starting to see a light on how we we turn this ship. Mm, thank you. Thank you for saying that. And I am very, I'm very excited to see us also, yes, uh, come to a comfort with using the carbon in our soils as a as a transition to and to invest in that carbon as um yes the the word offset has become a bit of a dirty word and i can understand why but to to really think about that we're still belching carbon but we can actually invest in agrarian life in our home communities yeah. And focus on the management that those land stewards can do to draw that very carbon plus more out of the atmosphere and helping those producers. It's kind of like igniting a state change in how they organize. So once you invest in them to change their land management, to put in that hedgerow, you might, you know, offset one of your trips, but that hedgerow will go on to serve pollinators for decades to come. Decades. Yeah. So it's... It's really um, a beautiful ricochet effect that it has when we invest in soil organic carbon below ground and some above ground carbon too, um, like the hedgerow and the windbreak. But I, I'm very excited about, yes, developing these more local markets too, because I think that's the big criticism of, of carbon, of monetizing carbon, is that it risks becoming just another commodity where it's sequestered somewhere where we don't understand and then we could that that carbon is very vulnerable because it could be that we're asking communities, you know, in the Amazon to do certain things to to protect our carbon storage, but it doesn't it's not commensurate with their land management values or that you know I, I've heard all kinds of nonsense about how carbon markets work, and I just think we could do so much better in this transition moment before we're all, you know, carbon neutral in our travel. We have. And we should really be obviously reducing our travel. I don't fly anymore. I'm just like, I'm done yeah, yeah. <laughs> off planes. But um, but I still feel that there's really important work like you getting out there and talking about your book is extremely important. And so we do have these, like I say, we're just, we're in transition. <laughs> so. so this idea of regenerative far farming and the carbon um, uh, sequestration, can you describe it for people so that it's, we understand how it is that um, raising sheep in a sustainable uh, way uh, on grazing land or growing organic cotton in a particular way how does this sequester carbon? What what does regenerative farming mean in this way? Well, anything right now, as we are in North Central California, that's green right now, is is alive and it's taking in the plant community is taking in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and actually using the carbon in that carbon dioxide to create. Um, numerous things, but one, the, the plant's very structure is actually made out of atmospheric carbon. Mm -hmm. We tend to think that 
the plant is drawing all of what it needs to build its very structure from and within the soil, but it's water that it's pulling out of the soil, but it's actually using the carbon and CO2 to build the leaf, to build the branch, to build the bark, the berry, the flower. That's literally a manifestation of carbon that was once in the atmosphere that's now showing up. They call it um, gas to mass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and gas to mass is this magical thing that's driven by what we all have come to learn when we're in seventh grade, photosynthesis. You know, the sunlight drives the movement of carbon into the plant through the plant's stoma, which are the little holes that take up the CO2, and the plant, mm-hmm. through the, the light, the sunlight energy, the, the sun drives the breaking of the molecule, and CO2 becomes carbon, and then, oh, oxygen. We get the benefit as humans um, of the oxygen that we breathe from these plants, but the carbon goes um, both into the plant structure, but it also goes underground, and it gets turned into a sugar that feeds below-ground microbial communities and fungal communities. And then those below-ground dynamic communities, they give the plant, in exchange for the sugar, they give the plant um, things that it needs, trace nutrients. And so it's actually this series of transactions and exchanges that um, are underpin our whole civilization and our ability to exist as humans And so we kind of take that for granted often, you know, things are green. Oh, no, they're really absorbing carbon out of the atmosphere as we speak. Um, So if we were to take that that understanding of photosynthetic carbon capture, sunlight-driven carbon capture, we can extend that understanding to say, well, is it, you know, look, look at a bare field. Is the bare field with just, you know, tilled dirt ready for that next cash crop, is that field sequestering carbon and taking carbon in, it can't. There's no plant life in it. (laughs) So that's where you see this big push to create cover crops uh, in these cash crop systems. How can we, how can we cover that, have living roots in the soil year round? And it's very hard in California because we are without water for long periods of time. But that's where perennial grasses could really, you know, come and solve problems if we were to graze for perennialization of our grasslands. So grazing is really important. If it's done well, it can be an incredible solution to enhancing photosynthetic carbon capture. If grazing is done poorly, it can undermine. It can, you know, you can get dusty dirt um, that, you know, because the animals overgrazed. But if you graze appropriately, the animals... Um, saliva stimulates grass growth. Um, so a cow grazing grass, their saliva, once the, the way they, they pull um, grass into their mouth, that saliva stimulates more growth for that plant. And um, the rumen, these, you know, these, the ruminants, the animals that have all that bacterial, um, that bacterial stomach that basically turns grass into protein, which is something we humans cannot do. But if you can turn grass into protein, it's it's really not the cow doing that. It's microbes doing that. And the microbes create um, this protein, but then out the back end of the animal is an incredibly microbial-rich nutrient known as manure. And so that manure um, that has all those microbes, that helps build the nutrient that the plant needs, and it inoculates the soil with more microbes. So if you thoughtfully graze, you give the land enough rest period between grazing 
you know, you graze what they say biomimetically. If if you mimic the the way that great herds moved across landscapes, they grazed um, animals grazed in ways where they weren't grazing um, totally behind. Like they they fan out across a prairie, like a big you know the bison, or if you even watch cows when they're huddled together and then they get into a new pasture, they fan out and they don't eat. If they're really healthy, they're not eating. Um, in the manure of another cow. <laughs> they actually fan out across the landscape. They eat everything, and then um, they keep fanning out, and then they keep moving and moving and moving, and then they allow the areas that they've grazed to rest. But when we close animals in to these contiguous ranches and we don't allow for rest periods, we get real problems. But like I said, you know, there's a nice saying that a lot of people use, it's not the cow, it's the how. Right. And that goes for sheep and goats and all fiber-producing animals. It's not the animal's fault. It's how we're moving them and the, across the landscape. And like I said, they can become incredible tools to help us sequester carbon if, if done well. And there are so many uh, examples in your book, Fibershed, Growing a Movement of Farmers, Fashion Activists, and Makers for a New Textile Economy. There are so many examples of success stories all along this continuum um, from the soil to the skin of how fiber comes to us. And it's a model that emphasizes quality far over quantity, and it emphasizes this full circle holistic thinking um, about our, our people and our plants and our places that is just beautiful. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, and thank you for your really meaningful work in this world. Oh, thank you so much for this incredible interview. My goodness. Loved it. <laughs> Rebecca Burgess is a gardener, a weaver, a natural dyer. She is the executive director of Fibershed, the chair of the Carbon Cycle Institute, and the author of two books. Her newest is Fibershed, growing a movement of farmers, fashion activists, and makers for a new textile economy. She joined us for this conversation in honor of Earth Day from the studios of KWMR, Homegrown Radio in Point Reyes Station, California. Join us again next week when we continue our Earth Day celebrations in conversation with Uli Lorimer, Director of Horticulture at Garden in the Woods, previously curator of Brooklyn Botanic Garden's Native Flora Garden. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over on cultivatingplace.com, make sure to check out more information and many images about the inspiring and transformative work of Fibershed, a model we can all grow from. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.